the voice of my beloved. Look, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing in at the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For now the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth its figs and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. The enlightenment of the 18th century in Europe was a period where people were searching for basic laws to understand what governs society and may gave meaning to the world, particularly at a time when the received truths of Christianity were not quite so firmly established in people's minds. They looked for a morality to live by. And one of the laws that they looked as being inalienable was the law of truth. And one of the giants of the philosophical world, Immanuel Kant, thought deeply about this and then posed this question. For those who believed in truth, what would happen if a philosopher opened the door to an urgent call, someone rushed in and said, save me, save me, there's a man with an axe who's trying to kill me. And of course, the philosopher saved the man, pulled him in his home, closed the door, and 30 seconds later, hammering on the door, a man stood there with an axe and said, did you see someone come in here? What does he do? Does he tell the truth? or a lie. We shall return to Kant later. We heard in our first reading from the letter uh, of James, as with much of the New Testament, commentators are not wholly sure to which congregation it was written or indeed who wrote it. So we don't know much about the context in fact, but we can understand from the text some of the things that were addressed. Now, some of you may recall that Martin Luther, the great reformer, called this an epistle of straw and would cheerfully have struck it from the New Testament had he had the option, because he saw that it was not about faith, but it was about practice, about works. But a careful reading through of the letter will show that, in fact, what it does is bring together belief and action. Faith makes a difference, not somewhere over the rainbow, but in the daily living, in the sunshine and the grime, in the joys of human activity and the messiness. So James begins to tease out what it means to live well together. Nowadays, it's common parlance for people to take exception when words and actions do not stack up. We bristle when we read there is one rule for them and one rule for us. We're not always certain of someone says, do what I say, not what I do. And of course, within the walls of the church, we hear them say, why do you not practice what you preach? In Shakespeare's Hamlet, 
Claudius, the king, has murdered his brother to get the throne. He is a usurper. And in one scene, he is seen on his knees, seeking forgiveness for God for what he has done. But in his heart of hearts, he knows he is not sorry for what he has done. And so, in a telling moment, in prayer, he fails to connect. Moves away with the words, my words fly up. My thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. He touches on that credibility gap between saying and doing. And whether it is an advisor or a politician or a Christian, words and deeds need to come together. For those who would talk of compassion but do not be caring, for those who would talk of acceptance and then are prejudiced, for those who talk of justice but then are not fair, fail to make real the truth. Did you notice something unusual in the reading of that letter, that part of James? How often do you talk about doing the word? But that's what the Greek says. It's not natural in our grammar to say that. So we understand that the word in this context is not just a spoken expression, but inhabiting the world that is created by the presence of God. James uses the same word that John does, the logos, the word of God, God's creative activity amongst women and men. So the word became flesh, flesh and blood. So, says James, following Jesus is not simply a matter of finding the right word to express what you believe, but of living the Christ-like way. Indeed, it is not all who say, Lord, Lord, who will find themselves in God's favour, but those who make it real. I came across a, an arresting image the other day, which talked about Christ as a verb. Maybe you will remember back from your days at school that a verb is a doing word. And so, Doing Christ is living out as best we can in the knowledge of God. Not for us, the reported words of the senator who said that some days you just have to rise above your principles. For each day, the Christian is living up to their theology. There is, of course, a warning in James not to get things wrong but to put together word and action. And he, the writer instances this as saying that is seen, for example, in the way in which you treat the vulnerable, orphans, widows, who by tradition within Jewish tradition had no form of protection. But it is by no means exhaustive of the care that Christian people are meant to show. 
when you were small, did you ever play the game of looking in the mirror, then walking away and seeing whether you could remember what you looked like? Maybe it was just me. There is something in the call of the Christian community to look at themselves and see what they see. Flaws and all. But it is also part of the concern of the Christian community to place a mirror in front of others so that they can see themselves. This is not always uncomfortable. Uh, this is not always comfortable and not always applauded by those who are brought before the mirror of life. So it will be that the church will continue to speak up for those who are marginalized, will voice those who are silenced, will name those who are discriminated against, will point out the disconnection between what people say and what they do. You will have been aware, I suspect, of some of the demonstrations in London in this week, which will be going on, organized by Extinction Rebellion. You may or may not applaud of the actions are taken, but surely this is one organization that seeks to make people look into the mirror. If you know this is the situation with the climate, what are you going to do about it? The lectionary brings together readings that often we would not expect to run together. When was the last time that you read through the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon? I suspect one of the least explored books of the Old Testament. The great 20th century preacher, Leslie Weatherhead, exercise of ministry at the city temple not far from here wrote a book called the busy man's old testament well it was in the 1940s the busy man's old testament and summarized each book and the value of it and when he got to the song of solomon he wrote unless you're interested in erotic love poetry you can leave this alone and it is erotic love poetry Nothing like perhaps as racy as what we would see on Love Island, but nonetheless, in its time and its context, quite challenging. In reading, look through the commentaries, you often see Christian tradition has desexualized this book by treating it purely as a metaphor. This is the relationship between Christ and the church that is idealized in a platonic love. Reminds us that the church has not always been comfortable with expressions of sexuality, often being timid or fearful or simply censorious about what goes on. But I, for one, am glad it is here in the Hebrew Bible and in our Old Testament. It is a reminder of the sheer delight and pleasure that God intends in the world. that milestone of Protestantism in Western Europe, Westminster Confession of Faith of 1647, and the catechesis, the first word for the catechist is this, what is the chief end of man? 
It was written in 1647. What is the chief end of man? It is to worship God and to enjoy him forever. Woe betide a church that forgets it is about enjoyment of one another and of God. This theme is written within our theology, reaching back to the very earliest days of the New Testament and shortly after. That God is in all. There was a movement that said, actually, God is in bits of life, but not the rest. Spirit good, flesh bad, avoid one, look for the other. But the story Gospels is that God in Christ has entered into the fullness of human existence. That means just not a bit here and a bit there, but a whole human being, the rational, the political, the emotional, the social, the sensual. Here is the whole woman and man before God. We know too well the world that such people create can be full of beauty and wonder or ugliness. It can be remarkably affirming or broken. It can be joyous or sad, creative or destructive, but it is our world in which God has invested. This breadth and depth of interest and sharing of God is why we should resist totally the view that said the church should stick to religion and keep out of politics or ethics or economics, even though the church risks getting it wrong and needs to hear from others. Truly, God does not diminish our humanity by reducing people to an ethereal shadow simply hoping for something that comes after death, but celebrates the fullness of life that is possible here and now. To borrow the phrase, we believe in life before death. So to seek out, to separate, to divide bits for God that are acceptable to God, the holy and spiritual, is somehow to lose the plot. Words and actions together reflect our whole response to God. So, back to Immanuel Kant. As the story shows, it's not always easy to live things out, to put our principles into practice. Life is rarely simple, offering choices that are either or. And often it's a matter of finding the right compromise to move on. In this world, perhaps the claim, the core is for us as human beings to fight against a tunnel vision that refuses to see beyond our way of looking, our way of doing. Church has been equally responsible at times for doing that. And that's why Christians need the breadth, of the, the breadth of the testimony of the Christian community across the years to help them in their thinking, for the wisdom, for prayer and study, for listening and speaking, doing and reflecting that sharpens a person's understanding 
sensitivity to God and makes them aware of others, their needs and their joys. And yes, indeed, prophets are needed from time to time to shake the foundations, even if that makes us anxious or uncomfortable. Second century bishop called Irenaeus wrote these words. The glory of God is a living person, but the life of a person comes from the vision of God. Words and our actions knit together to respond to the God who reaches out to us across all of life. So, sisters and brothers, let us be doers of the word and enjoyers of God and of each other. For the sake of Jesus Christ. We spend a moment in quiet together as we reflect upon our words, our hymns and our quiet. Our prayers of intercession, <clears throat> bearing in mind these troubled times as well. Lord, we share a tarnished world, a world disfigured by bloodshed, hate and violence, a dangerous and seemingly darkening world, far, far removed from creation's promise. So let us think particularly today of the tragic situation in Afghanistan. Daily, we are assailed by distressing images as we witness the desperate scramble to leave Kabul airport. The fear, hurt and despair seem tangible and we watch feeling so helpless. Let us pray therefore for all of those agencies struggling to bring some relief and hope in these troubled days. Lord, we pray that thou would listen to these, the deepest cries of our hearts, and bring to an aching, deeply hurting world your sovereign word of peace. Come, Prince of peace and reign. God of immeasurable love, be pleased to hear these our prayers. But amidst much gloom, let us rejoice and give thanks again for the dedication and frequently sacrificial service offered by so many in the whole global care community during this long season of pandemic. We rejoice in their service, remembering and taking comfort from Jesus' words, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Let us remember too those suffering bereavement, for the unemployed and the many families who struggle as a consequence of unemployment to make ends meet. For the lonely, the isolated, the homeless, the destitute and for all who long for emotional support. Lord, 
even with our limited resources here. May we still aspire to be a servant church grounded in the sacrament of care. We think of those two in the wider Christian community, including those who have become fatigued in Christian service, for others battling with doubt when the flame of faith burns low. Lord of compassion and healing, hear our prayers. And finally, let us remember that we are not alone in our pilgrimage. We have the promise that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, let us continue to try and support each other in whatever ways we can during these uncertain times. Remembering too the words of that hymn that we will shortly be singing. We are pilgrims on a journey and companions on the road. We are here to help each other walk the mile and bear the load. Lord, grant us wisdom, grant us courage for the living of these days. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord give you peace, now and forever. Amen.